Welcome to Myth Take episode 11. Yes, episode yes, 11. Yes, they're starting to rack up. Yes. We are your hosts. I am Allison. I am Darren. And we are in the midst of our mythological tour of the solar system. That's right. Mid-swell. We're, we're getting towards the end. We are. We are very slowly getting towards the end. Last podcast we looked at Uranus. Yes. And uh, we learned a little bit about... Um, William Herschel and his mm-hmm. more famous sister, mm-hmm. 1781, right? Mm-hmm. And that was pretty pretty interesting. Yeah, last yeah. episode was a while ago. It was a while ago, <laughs> I know. But we might have some new uh, some new followers, some new listeners, and so we would like to offer you a special welcome. Um, Avon McMaster kindly alerted us the other day that our podcast had made it to the new and noteworthy section on iTunes for higher education. Yes. So maybe we'll have a few new listeners. New and um, noteworthy. New and noteworthy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a little scary. It's so, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Tune in often. We, yeah. So now the pressure's on. That's right. Viewer mail? Uh, listener mail? I don't think I have any listener oh, mail today. Empty? Okay. But people are welcome to tweet us. I'm at Ines Allison, I-N-N-E-S-A-L-I-S-O-N. And I am at Darren Sundstrom. Yeah, so um, we'll give you that stuff again at the end. It's of in the, the notes. Yeah, it's and always it's in, in the notes for you. you always know, in the notes. To find. You can do hashtag myth take as well. Yeah. And you'll find yeah. us. So, Neptune. Yes. All right. Okay. So this is the last of the planets, unless you grew up in a certain era and are of a certain age and adamantly refuse to... Um, I admit that Pluto might not be a planet. Um, I put it down on my list as a planet, so I'm going with planet. Okay. We, we are going to include it. Um, it is Plutos. now considered a dwarf planet. Yeah. Um, but Neptune is our last of the gas giants mm-hmm. that we're looking at. Yeah, the big so, blue one. Big blue one. Yes, very blue. Yes. So, um, why don't I give us a little introduction yeah, we're, we're to need some, Neptune? We're going to need some science. Okay, about the so planet. the science is from the NASA website and um, Allison's amazing facts of planets. Allison read the NASA website uh-huh. and is not going to tell you what's on it so you don't have to read it, right? That's right. Okay, so discovered um, discovered 1846. Nice. So this was this is definitely not known to the ancients. No. Um, Galileo I believe it was mm-hmm. saw Neptune through his te- through his uh, rudimentary uh, telescope. Right, so he definitely needs some sort of. But he thought it vision. was a, yes, but okay. he thought it was a star. Okay. Yes. So it was discovered. Well, there's three people credited with it: John mm-hmm. Couch Adams, Urbain Joseph Le Verrier, mm-hmm. and Johann Gall. Um, Urbain Joseph Le Verrier. It's quite an impressive name. It is. It is like he discovered it using math. Math, huh? Yeah. So all that math that you learn in school might be good for something. Mm-hmm. Discovering um, So Uranus didn't travel its orbit exactly as was expected. And N- so you're talking about Neptune, that is. We're talking no, about no, no, Neptune. No. I know. Oh. Hang on a minute. Hang oh, on a minute. Okay. Yeah, you're, 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 you're trying to get ahead. ahead of me. Yep. Okay. Jump ahead. So when when they noticed that Uranus wasn't traveling as they expected to in its orbit, Le Verrier decided 
that he would use some math, and he figured out that there had to be another planet beyond Uranus. There you go. So he, he was French. He went to the French astronomers first, and they kind of ignored him, which was too bad for them, because that means they didn't get to be oh, famous oh. for discovering it. Mm-hmm. Um, so he went to Berlin, where he... Um, had astronomer Johann Gottfried Gall. Well, I had a better reception in Berlin. Yes, and and uh, so he had a little chat with his friend Johann, and Johann had a look through his telescope the next like the next day or two, mm-hmm. and is like, aha, there is a planet, and it is a planet. Oh, there you go. Yes, confirmed so, with the technology of the telescope. Yes, right. yes. Um, so Neptune is very far away from the sun; um, doesn't get a heck of a lot of light. We're talking 4.5 billion kilometers, billion with a B, and that's 2.8 billion miles for our American listeners. And it has a very long orbit, and this is kind of mind-boggling to me. In 2011, it completed its first orbit since its discovery. There you go. So that's an orbit of 165 years. We'd all be babes on Neptune. It's... (laughs) Oh, yeah, I don't know um, how that would work. Yeah, well, we, we, we'd all be children all the time. We'd never make our first birthday. I'm pretty sure a year is a year is a year. But, yeah, got it. So, um, it has an interesting orbit because Pluto mm-hmm. actually enters into Neptune's orbit. That's cool. But because of the way math and science work, they uh, never get close enough to collide or cause any damage. Right, Okay. Um, the temperature on Neptune is a balmy minus 214 degrees Celsius. Awesome. Or minus 353 Fahrenheit. The rotational axis and the magnetic field don't line up on Neptune, so it's got a really wonky magnetosphere. Um, that is, and it's also um, 27 times more powerful than Earth's magnetosphere. So I imagine that it probably has some pretty wild-looking auroras. Um, on. With all that magnetic yeah. soup going on. Yeah. I don't know. NASA website didn't say that. That's just me. It's definitely a really brilliant blue. I think yeah. most of the pictures I've seen are yeah. well, photo enhanced. But it's Well, its atmosphere is hydrogen, helium, and methane. And methane is what gives it its blue color. Mm-hmm. On um, We're talking about Uranus, Neptune. Yes. On Uranus, um, the methane gives a blue-green color. So uh-huh. they think that there's some some chemical on Neptune that the methane is reacting to to give it the brilliant blue color. It's very appropriate that it's named after the god of the sea uh, given its given its uh, color. Absolutely. So a day on Neptune is 16 Earth hours. So the day is much shorter, but the year is much, 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 much longer. Yes. Um, and it's very windy on Neptune. Um, three times that of Jupiter um, the, and the winds are nine times as strong as what we find on Earth. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, um, there's only been one space voyage to Neptune. And well, that I was, was going to ask you that. That yeah. was Voyager 2 in 1989. Well, I was one. just thinking the 80s were yeah. a pretty cool era for space exploration. There's yeah. lots of exciting stuff happening. That came up in the last yeah. one. did a Uranus, yep. a Uranus yep. and a Neptune yeah. flyby. So Voyager 2 noticed a great dark spot, so a storm, a storm in Neptune's southern hemisphere. Right, right. Um, that is at least was at least as large as Earth, and was moving um, 1,200 kilometers an hour or 750 miles an hour. But that spot has since gone. They can't find it with the Hubble Space uh, Telescope. Okay. So 
I guess the storm has awesome. dissipated or something. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, it's not there anymore. Subsided. It was there. It's not there. Hey, it's part of the you know the ever-changing, wonderful, dynamic yeah. nature of the cosmos. Yeah. So super windy and super cold. Mm-hmm. Did you know what Neptune has rings? Oh, there again. No, I didn't I know. know. Yeah, we all rings think Saturn with the rings. There's been rings on everything. Yep. Um, so there are six rings, mm-hmm. and they're thought to be kind of youngish rings. And of course, in astronomical terms, youngish does not <laughs> mean very young by human terms. Right. Um, and interesting, interestingly, the rings aren't uniform, but they're kind of clumpy. And um, they think that this might be because they're younger rings and the material hasn't evened out, or it could be because of the moon um, Galatea is is perhaps inter like its gravitational pull is interfering with the rings yes um so and the rings were not confirmed um until voyage until the voyager 2 expedition Mm -hmm. because neptune is so far away and it gets so little light that it's very difficult to see um what is in effect these relatively tiny rings from a very great distance yeah they're kind of i mean if you were up close to them they'd be massive because we are talking about a substantial planet here most people don't even know it has rings so yeah exactly Mm -hmm. so um they were the rings were suggested in the mid-1980s and they were confirmed with the voyager 2 probe yes so do you know how many moons voyager um how many moons i'm going to take a guess and say that there are 12 well, yes and no. Thirteen okay. moons. Oh, not bad. Thirteen, possibly fourteen. Hey, not bad guess. Yeah. So you're close. Yeah. You're close. Um, six were discovered by Voyager two. Hey, so that's again, a good, that was a good day. So we're talking. <laughs> it was a great time. Yeah. So we're talking about again from Earth, really tiny little thing, tiny little specks orbiting what it looks like a yeah. star, effectively. Yeah, exactly. Um, so very difficult to spot. Uh-huh. The fourteenth moon um, was discovered in 2013, and it's awaiting official recognition. Right. Um, at least according to the NASA website. So it doesn't have a name; it just gets a number for now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and. Any guesses on what the naming theme might be for the moons? We've talked totally. about... Totally. Yeah. Classical. Okay, but what aspect of classical? Uh, Greek. Greek mythology, more than likely, sons and daughters of uh, Poseidon, I would There imagine. you go. Yeah. There you go. So as we've seen with other planets... Or there's close. Something there's, close. There's naming themes yeah. for different features. And yeah. for Neptune, the naming theme for its moons are lesser sea gods and nymphs. There you go, yeah. Okay, so... God, there's a lot of that. Now I'm going to twi- uh, quiz you on some of these. Oh, no. Okay, the first moon, the largest moon, is Triton. Triton, yeah. Yes. Okay. Can you enlighten us anything about Triton? No, not particularly. You know, just a, a son, of, uh, son of Poseidon and Amphitrite, his wife. Okay. Yeah. All right, so... He occurs in a couple of myths. Yeah. Yeah. They're like usually like the bottom of a sea serpent, top of a man with a conch or something like that. Yeah. You see him in uh, the Argonautica, mm-hmm. right? He helps yeah. the Argo uh, get out of the Libyan desert. He's in a couple of uh, other minor works. That's about yeah. It. yeah. So Triton the Moon is icy cold uh, because what light it does get, it reflects back from its very icy surface. Uh-huh. So we're talking minus 235 degrees Celsius. So that's almost minus 400. Wow. 
Wow. Yeah. yeah. But interestingly, um, Voyager 2 discovered that there are these icy um, geysers mm-hmm. spewing um, icy substance mm-hmm. <laughs> up eight kilometers high. Oh, yeah, like five, geysers. Yeah. yeah. Kind of like Yosemite. Yeah, right? Like yeah. the old faithful of space. Yeah. So, <laughs> so these are on Triton. Yeah, yeah, from the sounds of it. Go 7-Eleven, you know, Coca-Cola. Um, and speaking of speaking of beverages, actually, mm-hmm. we have beer to thank for the discovery of Triton, in a way. Really? Um, yeah, so it was just discovered by William Lassell, and he had a beer fortune, uh-huh. and being very rich from beer uh-huh. allowed him to engage pursue in... Gentlemanly pursuits. Gentlemanly pursuits. Yes, such yes. as astronomy. Mm-hmm. And he discovered Triton only 17 days after, mm-hmm. so just over two weeks after Neptune's discovery. Wow, there you go, yeah. see? So that's pretty impressive. Right place, right time. Um, interestingly, Triton um, rotates around Neptune opposite to the way Neptune... Well, I don't know. If, is that interesting? I don't know. They say it's interesting on NASA, so I'm okay. going to take their words for it. Counter-rotational yeah. orbit. And it's being slowly pulled into Neptune by gravity. So it might wind up being pulled close enough to be pulled apart and turned into a ring. Nice. Um, the second moon to be discovered is actually only the third largest, and that is Myriad. Uh-huh. And that was discovered by Gerard Kuiper of Kuiper Belt fame. Oh, yeah, that guy. In 1949. And that has the most eccentric uh-huh. orbit of any known moon. Okay. And Proteus um, is the second largest moon, but it's very dark, and so that's why they didn't, didn't find it right mm-hmm. away. Um, Proteus. 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 Okay. Proteus? Proteus. Okay. It looks like it should be Proteus. Like where we get the adjective in English, protean, meaning changing of forms. Proteus is a god that is a shapeshifter who changes, and many of us would be familiar with his presentation as the old man in the sea. Right. Okay. So that's a myth theme that you get often is uh, shape changers have, you know, wisdom to get to give you, but you got to get a hold of them first. Right. And Proteus, the old man of the sea. Um, do, uh, so the Nereids, um, there's there's also a moon Naiad. There, those are like uh, yeah. nymph-like. Yeah, sea um, nymphs. Sea, sea nymphs. Mermaids. Did, did you want like to say anything about any of the other? I don't know many names? of them. What, oh, Galatea and all that? Yeah. Not, not particularly. Okay. They are all either kind or kindred of Poseidon in some form or another. Yeah. Daughters. I see a couple of daughters. I see a couple of nymphs. The last Thalassa. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, I'm recognizing a little bit of my Greek studies there. Mm-hmm. Thalassa. Um, the sea. The sea. Mm-hmm. A thalassocracy. Yes. Is what I always think of when I see Thalassa. Yes, or I think of Thalata, 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 right? They say the sea, the sea, the yeah. sea, when they, when they spot the land, uh, land. I mean, when they spot the ocean, we get back home. So uh, a few little numbers things for those of you who like numbers. Um, Neptune at the equator is almost four times that of Earth. Um, its volume is 57 times that of Earth, and its mass is 17 times that of Earth. And if you want the exact numbers, you can go look on uh, on NASA. I'll put the link up. It is a but the most important measurement of every planet mugs-o-meter. is the Muggsometer. Yes. So Muggs the cat, who is lurking around somewhere, 
Eight she's pounds. over there watching us from her cat tree. Um, she's, well, she's not really eight pounds. I thought she was eight pounds. So that's what we're going with. Um, on Neptune, she'd be 8.96. So bad. it's not bad. So 100 pounds on Earth is 114 pounds. On, that's a tax, isn't it? Yeah, it's isn't like it? tax. Is, is tax still 14%? Sure, I don't know. Something like that, yeah. right? Yeah. Close enough. <laughs> um, yeah, so that is Neptune, the planet. The sea tax. And, um... Neptune, the sea god. Yeah, so now we need to transition. Yeah. I don't know, I can't think of a good segue. But now we need to transition to talking about Neptune slash Poseidon. Poseidon, yeah. of course, being the Greek. Yes. And Neptune being the Roman version. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. There was a god, uh, an Etruscan deity called Neptunus, that is, god of the sea as well. But and the Etruscans we don't know much about, the Romans. Yeah, we don't know much about the Etruscan um, pantheon. But... Again, Neptune is Poseidon, and Poseidon is the god of the sea, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and he is um, his birth is recorded in Hesiod's Theogony, mm -hmm. right? He is the second son of Cronus and Rhea. Uh, um, as you know from previous episodes, all the brothers and sisters were uh, consumed by Cronus at the moment of their birth, except for the last-born Zeus, who was substituted with a rock. Uh, but sticking with Poseidon, he um, first Hades is the elder, oldest brother mm -hmm. of the males that were born, and then Poseidon comes along and he is uh, consumed, right? Mm -hmm. Until ultimately he is freed. Now you, I think you said you had looked up a little bit of information about the worship of Poseidon. Well, the cult yeah, of Poseidon. Yeah. Um, so there are temples to Poseidon. Um, the one that sticks out in my mind, I think there was one at Sunian. Um, that kind of sticks in my mind from an art, an ancient art class yeah. <laughs> at some point. The, that's the one of some controversy regarding a particular statue that everyone attributes to Zeus, which in, may in fact actually yes. be Poseidon. It, is that is that the uh, one where he is he throwing a thunderbolt or yes. is he throwing a spear? Not a spear. No, not a spear. No. No. Nope. Trident. Trident. Poseidon Thank is known you. for Sorry. the trident. Yes. Right. That's what I was envisioning. Trident. Yeah. Spear came out. Trident being that uh, fishing spear, fishing spear, the three-pronged mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. contraption that we associate with, with the devil's pitchfork. Yes, and in fact, even the cloven hooves come from a fusion of of Poseidon and yes. some and some because Poseidon's association with horses uh, has uh, uh, this idea of a fused body. Even Pan, you know, some some people have thought that 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 has come from Pan, but. Actually, the idea of the trident and the cloven hoof is a fusion of Poseidon, and it gets sort of folded into the devil. Yeah, into yeah. Um, Christian, yeah. Christian Christianity tradition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I I find that really fascinating. That uh, it is, um, and and the fact that it's a it's a sea god that gets that that gets folded in. in well, yeah, I think it's not specifically for the fact that he's related to the sea. No, but no, no, but I think that that's interesting. Yes, yeah. um, Poseidon, the ancient Greek culture, of course, we know is a maritime culture, and in the maritime culture, the sea is life, right? And uh, in a in a society like ancient Greece, especially in the eighth century during the time of colonization, traveling from your homeland and establishing a colony in a faraway place requires you to travel over the sea. Mm -hmm. So um, it is a major source of trade, travel, colonization, and, and livelihood, because yeah. they do fish. But it's also a very terrifying 
Yes, it is. Um, a very terrifying uh, sphere or, or aspect of the world. Yes. Um, and especially in the Mediterranean, um, winds and storms can come up quite quickly. Sure. And we're talking um, basic um, navigation um, relative com compared to what we're used to being able to travel in. Yeah. Um, sail and oars and... Um, it's dangerous. It's Yes. So it's very dangerous. And we see that from Hesiod right on sure. down. You know, your safest, your um, safest. And we see that today with with the refugee um, crisis and uh, and the problems that they run into in, in their boats in, in uh, storms. In the sure, stay within sight of land. Yeah. Right, which is yeah. what primarily what the ancient Greeks did. And I think there's also an aspect too of the water being a sort of liminal place um, and an association with monsters because it is very deep and very strange things mm -hmm. come out of the water. Yes. Um, or yeah, so. That's an interesting aspect, too. There's lots of that going on. You know, the sea itself is described by the ancient Greeks as being a barren place because it is salt water and, and, and things don't grow there. And primarily what is be a pastoral or a agrarian-based society. Now, you, you can't know, use salt water. You can't really use salt water. So it's seen as fairly sterile. Uh, but it is filled with a profusion of strange life forms, like mm -hmm. you have you know, octopi, for mm -hmm. example, and dolphins and such were seen as incredible uh, monsters. And in the region, the sea itself is uh, a source of uh, dread and uh, 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 reverence and awe, right? Yeah, um, and I mean, this is this is somewhat anecdotal, but a yeah. lot of places that have some kind of deep lake or body of water, there's a, some kind of monster story associated yeah. with it. Mm -hmm. um, I know we see that in Celtic mythology. What is it, the, the Kel Kelpies that come out of the water? Um, and you've got monster stories like Loch Ness and... Uh, mm -hmm. Well, Silkies well, you're talking about. Yeah, whatever yeah. they are. Yeah. Sorry. Well, in the, in the more in this yeah. region, in Canaanite yeah. mythology and in the, in, uh, in the biblical tradition, we have the myth of the Leviathan, for example. Yes, right? yes. Uh, and the um, um, uh, god Yam yeah. and then Baal and all the rest of them. They're weather gods fighting against the sea. So there's always been a conflict of sorts in the mythological realm uh, between the land and the sea, and it is um, one of rivalry and reconciliation. And that's a theme that continues today. I mean, you can just think of Jules Verne, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking of the Michael Crichton um, story where they're under the sea and their nightmares sure. become realities. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then even like from time to time when there's some like really bizarre looking sea creature mm -hmm. that gets caught up in somebody's net or something or yeah. a giant squid or you know like it's just it's just so bizarre it is um and and it, and it catches the news and we really um we really even today we do not know very much about the sea and the ocean and what's underneath the water like there's there's a lot to be learned absolutely today so it's it's it, got like a, a grip on our collective imagination it does so. it's, it's it's something that doesn't rear its head again until the age of space exploration where our sort of subconscious terrors get transferred out into the vast unplumbed depths of space mm -hmm. but in in the in the ancient cosmos that space doesn't yet exist so that that idea of the vast unknown is applied to uh, the fear of, of the water, to fear the fear of the depths, and that is one of the realms of Poseidon. He is known as the Earth Shaker, right? But he's also a god of the sea, mm -hmm. right? 
and um, you know the ancient Greeks believed that the waters were the source of earthquakes, which is sort of a foreign concept for us, considering our knowledge of sort of plate tectonics and so on. But as the ancient Greek mind looked at it, and some of their early scientists looked at it, they saw water erosion, and they saw, you know, um, the destruction wrought upon islands during the course of an earthquake, and and the sea itself kind of bubbles and churns and there's tidal action and stuff, so they thought that that was how, uh, you know, that was the source of the earthquakes. And metaphorically, Poseidon is rending the earth with his with his trident during the time of an earthquake, right? So that's part of his force and part of his violence. And he's he's a he's a um, a, a, a passionate kind of dynamic, powerful and violent divinity. He's a lot like Zeus, uh, but with uh, less restraint. So for our listeners, then. Mm-hmm. Um, how does he become associated with horses? Because, I mean, mm-hmm. there's seahorses, but I don't think that's necessarily what the Greeks were thinking. So no, they weren't. The, so, the, he, he, in art, often, in mosaics, especially Roman ones, I noticed, but a few Greek ones as well, you see Poseidon uh, driving a chariot pulled by hippocampi, the sort of half-horse, half-fish mythological creatures, but um, Poseidon is associated with the horse and also associated with the bull, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the powerful land animals. And, and, and um, we learn in Pausanias, for example, uh, and Apollodorus, that Poseidon is the one who is responsible for, and a number of different stories, introducing the horse, right, to the Greeks. Um, also, the use of the bridle, for example, is attributed to Poseidon uh, in horsemanship and horsecraft. Um, he's also... As a result of like the birth of Arion, which is the son that Demeter gave birth to when she was raped by Poseidon in the form of a stallion. The, that's the first sort of immortal horse. And then you see in mythology this whole series of immortal horses, for example. Right? And that, and that Even can... Poseidon himself takes yeah. the form of a horse. He prefers that shape. And the connection between um, horses and earthquakes yeah. um, again doesn't and make a lot bulls. of sense to us, yeah. and, and and even bulls. Yeah. But it's uh, what what I how I have always heard it explained by mm-hmm. scholars is it's the sound. So horses mm-hmm. um, hoofbeats on the ground. You totally. have a stampede of horses, a stampede of bulls, or something like that. Yeah. You've got the rumbling noise, and mm-hmm. you've got that association with earthquakes and the shaking of the earth just from the from the animals. Themselves. themselves and, and this 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 cacophonous sort of metaphorical complex where like in the ancient world you have earthquakes and you have volcanic activity and tectonic activity and there's there's rushing waters and there's floods and these types of things are all and, and even you know the, the chariot wheels and and horse hooves and uh, even driving cattle for example all those sort of sounds get sort of fused together right mm-hmm. and start to sort of form an idea of, of, of the different associations that are attributed to a god like Poseidon. Yeah. Power and energy and violence and passion, right? Yeah. Um, and not necessarily negative. I don't want... It's not really negative. It's a, it's a, it's an, the gods are representative of expressions that are already sort of in us, like Joseph Campbell would say, right? That the, the Poseidon is a, is a representation of, of, of mankind's sort of um, desire, uh, and but also passion would be the word I would use, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you could say violence. Right? And I was just thinking that we see Poseidon and the bull in the myth of Minos. Yes, um, where he offers the bull and it's not sacrificed, and yeah. we get and lined up with the, with the Minotaur. Absolutely, and that also sets up too with with Minos as the son of Zeus, 
right? Mm -hmm. It also sets up that idea that when we look at a god like Poseidon, you, Zeus is close because um, there's a rivalry between the two that many of the ancient sources sort of hint at. And um, even in the some of the associated hymns, right, uh, we see this idea, especially in the Iliad, of a conflict between the elder brothers, right, between Zeus and Poseidon. And Zeus is the strongest, right? And Poseidon is not as strong, right? But he is... He's pretty he's strong. He's pretty still. strong, right? And that's our, he doesn't fear his brother. He respects him. And you can see some of those, those aspects in there um, with the, the idea of Poseidon. And Poseidon is a god that is more worshipped... Uh, well, he, he's very popular in the Isthmus area, in Corinth and in the Argolid. And he's seen as a protector of cities as well, right? So he's also concerned with land and also concerned with territory. And lots of the myths and lots of the hymns are about negotiations between gods for um, the right to be honored in various cities or in various locations. Even Delphi, for example, has a tradition that places Poseidon at the center of the story. And, and Pausanias tells us that the first god worshipped at Delphi, of course, was Earth, but it was also Poseidon, right? And then Apollo was later gifted, right, that um, that location, Delphi, in exchange for a nearby city. Polis. Well, and Poseidon and Athena compete for Athens. Yes, they do. They compete for yeah. Athens. And there, there's a couple of different myths there about how that works out, including the origin of the horse, including on whether or not... Like, and was the it, origin of the olive tree. The and, olive yeah. tree, right, and the water and the salt water and so on, right? But... That is part of the about what's going on in these early stories is about establishing patron de deities, and many of them are associated with Poseidon. So he's no slouch. And you know, when we first when we were first thinking about Poseidon and what we were going to talk about, it was kind of rare because it doesn't really have a lot of like primary sources that are directly attributed to him. Because Zeus gets most of the spotlight, and 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 even in the Odyssey, for example, right? Like yeah. it's primarily Odysseus and Athena. And, Poseidon is in there as the chief protagonist of Odysseus, but he doesn't have a lot of speaking roles. He's just sort of, we just know, right? Yeah, so why don't we move into looking at some ancient texts sure. then? And um, I believe our first passage that we've got today, um, they're all from the Iliad. Um, Iliad, book 15 and line 38 to 48. The ox-eyed Lady Hera stiffened at this, and she feathered her words home carefully. All right, I swear by earth and heaven above and the subterranean waters of the Styx, the greatest and the most awesome oath a god can swear, by your sacred head and by our marriage couch, upon which I would never perjure myself, that it is not by my will that Poseidon is hurting the Trojans and helping the Greeks. He's acting of his own free will, out of pity for, for the beating the Greeks are taking by their ships. But I would advise even him to toe the line and follow wherever you lead, dark cloud. Okay, so that passage is Hera talking to Zeus about Poseidon. About the actions of Poseidon in Book 15 of the Iliad. And I want to give a little bit of backstory first. The gods Apollo and Poseidon are responsible for building the walls of Troy. And um, they go back a generation or two to Laomedon, the first uh, king of Troy. Now we have Priam. Uh, Poseidon is on the side of the Greeks, 
and Apollo is on the side of the Trojans. And so there's a conflict, yes, on Earth between uh, Trojans and Greeks, but there's also a conflict on Mount Olympus. And Zeus has been sort of brought into this story. Uh, he's been asked to um, make the Trojans win, right, um, by um, Thetis, a sea goddess, Achilles' mother. But Poseidon loves the Greeks, and Poseidon doesn't want them to suffer. So he is, in this moment in Book 15 and moving into Book 20, becoming a, a hero-like character. He's intentionally placing himself in opposition to his elder brother, the king of the gods and men, Zeus, and he's joining, actively joining the battle in contravention to Zeus's commandments. Yeah, and Hera is, is um, saying here that... Um, she would advise him if Poseidon knows what's good for him. Yeah. Poseidon needs to be following Zeus's lead instead of doing his own thing. Yeah, it's well known at this point that Zeus has told them to stay out of the conflict directly, but the machinations of goddesses like Hera and Athena are still continuing to operate and affect some of their heroes, and they don't like to see their, their loved ones, for lack of a better word, suffer, right? And Poseidon uh, it finds himself on this, in this camp, and he takes action. Right? Mm -hmm. and, and even Hera, who swears a powerful oath here, says that Poseidon should listen. Mm -hmm. right? And that oath um, on, on the sticks, that is the most... Um, it's the most sacred oath. It's, it's the binding oath for That's gods. Right. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay. It, 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 it tells us that there are forces that exist beyond sort of like Zeus, like fate and Mora and the power of the oath, for example. Mm -hmm. These are, um, these are uh, powerful beings, but they're not omnipotent. Right? Yes, and they're, yes. they they are, are are filled with wisdom and vision, but they're not omniscient, right? So these things occur on a finite scale, right? And um, that's the nature of the conflict. And then in response to this, um, Zeus Zeus tells Hera, you know what? Um, if you really agree with this, then send um, Iris and Apollo to go tell Poseidon to desist yes. from the war. Right. So we, we get, um, we get a messenger. We get, Iris is dispatched to deliver to, uh, Poseidon this message, right? To tell him to sit down, right? And, um, we, we will read that. Okay. Right? The only other thing I want to mention mm -hmm. is because you mentioned about the oath and we talked about its sort of supernal quality. One two little things that popped into my mind. One was in the Theogony, um, when it describes the environs of Tartarus. Poseidon is the god who's responsible for sealing in the Titans with the brass, with the bronze doors, right? So he builds the jail, right? Mm. Zeus puts them in the jail, mm -hmm. right? Also, Briareus, one of the three hundred handers, is made a son-in-law of Poseidon. He marries off one of his daughters to to the hundred handers. They okay. have three houses that are down there, all built by Poseidon. So Poseidon is a builder god, right? Um, unfortunately, uh, even in Plato, Atlantis sunk beneath the waves, but he built that, and it's it's described, and it's quite magical and magnificent, right? It's his place on Earth, and in Hesiod's Theogony, right? Hesiod describes the Namos scene as the division being Zeus's will, but in the Iliad, thanks to Homer. In book 15, is it book 15? No, it's book 11, when he describes that they drew lots. Mm -hmm. Right? So it's, it's, it's different. Mm -hmm. Hesiod says it's this way. Homer says it's that way. Right? So yeah. there's that random chance right, that determines where it is. And, what, and when they talk about the threefold division, we say things quickly like heaven, earth, and the underworld. Right? But when you look at the Homeric vision right, it, of the drawing of the lots by the brothers, it was the sky 
belonged is one that the portion that Zeus drew, mm -hmm. right? And that the waters was the portion that Poseidon drew. And then the underworld is the portion that Hades drew. But yet the earth and Mount Olympus remain common to all three. Mm, so okay. that's something that you don't get with a pure sort of Hesiodic idea mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, the, 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 the realm of the above, the earth, and then the underworld, mm -hmm. right? There's a shared place, right? The earth. Right? This place, too, is a place where Poseidon, for all his, for all his violence and for all his passion and dynam dynamism, is still a god of rational, rationality. And I can only think of one other example. And, and that is when, in the Odyssey, he does what he does for a purpose, right? Everything's extended because, you know, it's amplified because it's gods, right? Vengeance, right? When Polythemus is blinded, he takes it really far, mm -hmm. right? But, but who are we to say how far that is, right? But the only other example I'm thinking about, again, occurs in a myth and a myth, is in Odysseus, in the Odyssey, I mean, where it describes the, the capture of Venus and Ares in, in the Hephaestian net. Remember mm -hmm. we talked about yep. that during that? Yeah. All the other gods are brought in and they snicker and point and so on and so forth, but it is Poseidon who says, okay, we've had enough, it's time to let them go, mm. right? And he yeah. tells the husband, who's the one who should be the injured party, and is, that's why he acted the way he did. Okay, you've, you've had the limit of your, of your revenge, right, in essence, metaphorically speaking. It's time to release them now. And then they leave, and it's done. It's accomplished, mm -hmm. right? But I find it strange uh, of note that Poseidon is the one that says that, mm -hmm. right? Because he is extreme, and he knows those sorts of things, right? So uh, there's, there's rationality. Poseidon is not a, a, a mindless God, even in in these sections, he he seems to make a great deal of sense. He's someone who you really want as an ally, and you would not want to have as an enemy. No, definitely not. Right. Let's look at the Irish section next. Okay. So Iris flew with the speed of desire and confronted the glorious Shaker of Earth. A message for you, blue-maned sea god. I come here from Zeus, who bears the aegis, and who bids you cease from war and battle, and go off to the other gods, or to the bright sea. If you are inclined to disregard his words, he threatens to come here himself and wage war against you, and he strongly advises you to avoid his hands, since he is mightier by far an elder born. Yet you have the gall to claim you are equal to him whom all the gods dread. Okay, so that's... Iliad 15, uh, lines 176 to 185. And yes. this is Iris speaking to Poseidon. Absolutely. Yeah. And he's blue-maned, just he's like blue the planet, blue. Absolutely, <laughs> blue-maned, right? Like, you, you'll see examples of him, and that's a very vivid description, of course, you know, the blue waters. Uh, uh, but blue-maned, you know, and he has dark curly hair, sometimes with a headband. He is always bearded, much like Zeus. Um, and... Uh, uh, a very regal, um, powerful figure, and of course, always armed with, with his trademark trident, right? And of, and of course, he's referenced here as the shaker of earth. Shaker one of, of his earth. Epithets, as one we talked epithets. about the idea of uh, earthquakes. Here. Yes, the idea of the power and the force of earthquakes, right? Um, so, in that scene there, we get Iris speaking to Poseidon, saying, "Okay, um, we know what you're doing. Zeus knows what you're doing. You have to stop it." He carries the Aegis, which is the symbol of his authority, right? It's kind of like his credentials, okay. right? And it's referenced. Right? Um, yeah, so just for those who might not be familiar with what that is, mm -hmm. um, what is 
Well, it's it, um, it primarily is associated with Athena, right? Um, it is Zeus's to start with, and Zeus grants it to her to augment her strength as her as his chief lieutenant in the cosmos, and it is a, a sort of an upper kind of cloak, maybe a bit of armor around the shoulders that's uh, covered with uh, the goat skin, yeah. right, and a gorgon's head, the Medusa's head, yeah. and uh, it is a, um, a weapon. Right, that is uh, 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 inspires fear and terror. Right, that can petrify you, uh, and um, it's used to great effect by Athena on the battlefield. But it also symbolizes Zeus's sort of authority. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's kind of like um, a badge of sorts, right? Yeah. And 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 I, and I believe I read somewhere that the goat that uh, the goat. <laughs> that sounds funny to say that, but the goat that raised Zeus in the cave, Amalthea, okay. her hide was used to construct the Gorgon Curios, okay. which is the uh, type of armor, right? Okay. So it is magical and invulnerable yeah. and all the great sort of things. You know, it's like, you know, the Ark of be carried be before the Israelites in battle or whatever. This sort of thing Athena uses as well. So she can take on whole battalions of men with it and they just flee in terror or fall with... Uh, petrifying fear or whatever, you know, power of God type stuff that you got. Mm -hmm. So that he, he references that he will use that. Um, in, and he, he references it, Iris references it um, in, in, in association with, she, with Zeus. She right. reminds Poseidon, you've yes. got to listen to him. Yeah, and, and, and she says to him, you know, go off and join the other gods, right? Uh, you can do it either on Mount Olympus or go to the bright sea, since that yeah, is your element, yeah. right? And it's, but, it, but there's a caged warning here, right? An admonition that says, if you are inclined to disregard his words, then that could be your honor, you know? You're not compelled. There's no compulsion for you to obey. If you wish to disobey, that's entirely on you. And it says, but he threatens you to come here, to come here himself and wage war against you, right? And these would be, this would be brothers. And he advises you to avoid his hands because he is stronger, right? And it says uh, that he is the elder born, right? Mm -hmm. So and he must obey. He Right? And That's the tradition. We talked, um, mm -hmm. we talked in the Cronus yes. episode about that idea that he is elder, but he's also youngest. That's so, right. So if you're a little confused, um, just you can pop back and right. listen to that discussion there. And and it would seem in this quote that Poseidon has in the past, or at least in the very recent history, re recent past, claimed that he is the equal to Zeus himself, right? And then. Um, now we know, and Poseidon knows that's not true. Yeah. But no one else would be able to check him on that, right? yeah. Because he's very close to it, right? And this idea of conflict with Zeus is something that we see, not only here in Book Fifteen, right? Not only here in the Iliad, but it's also hinted at in other sources as well. Conflict between the Olympians is a widespread theme that are in the hymns themselves, along with adjustments with their honors and Timai, whether it be Demeter or Aphrodite or so on, or even Hermes, for example, or Apollo. Poseidon, right, uh, is fair game, right? And in I was reading Andrew Faulkner's book on the Homeric hymns, and a scholar by the name of Jenny Clay says that this is possibly, it may, uh, may, right, um, be hinting at a, um, an idea that there is a, an earlier story, um, of, a, of a time of conflict between Poseidon and Zeus, okay. where they were maybe more equal and more rivals, right? Um, yeah. Okay. A, a, a more serious earlier competition between two gods for divine supremacy, right? Because 
we definitely know that Zeus and the Dioscuri, for example, are Indo-European sky gods. But Poseidon seems to be more native. He's in the Cretan record, he's in the Linear B tablets, he's in the Mycenaean record, so he's, he's probably already there, right, in some form or another. And then Zeus comes in, and then the big, you know, yeah. whatever happens after that, right? Yeah, and so then, then you have to have a story about yeah. how... Yeah, we need stories, yeah. right, about yeah. how they start getting yeah. along and who's who and what's what, yeah. right? All right, so then let's um, move on to Poseidon's reply. The Earthshaker made this angry reply. He may be strong, but this is outrageous, to force me, his peer, to stop against my will. We three brothers, whom Rhea bore to Kronos, Zeus, myself, and Hades, Lord of the Dead, divided up the universe into equal shares. When we took the lots, I got the grey sea as my eternal domain. Hades, the nether gloom. Zeus, the broad sky with clouds and bright air. Earth and high Olympus remain common to all. I will not follow Zeus's whims. Mighty as he is, let him remain content with his third share and not try to frighten me as if I were a coward. Better for him to threaten his own children with abusive language, the sons and daughters he begot himself, who will listen because they must. And Iris, her feet soft in the offshore wind, is this the message, blue-maned sea god, I should take to Zeus, this hard, unyielding speech? Will you not relent, as noble hearts often do? You know how the Furies always side with the Elder. And Poseidon Earthshaker answered her, That is very well spoken, Iris. It is good when a messenger understands how things are. But bitter pain comes to my heart and soul whenever anyone attacks an equal, a peer of equal status with angry words. Although I am offended, I will yield for now. But I will say this, and make this threat from my heart. If in spite of me and Pallas Athena, and Hera and Hermes and Hephaestus Lord, he spares steep Ilion, and is not willing to lay it waste, nor give power to the Greeks, he can be sure of eternal strife between us. And with that, Poseidon left the Greek army and dove into the sea. They missed him sorely. Okay, so that took us from line 176 to line 221. Okay. Um, and Some we've good got a, stuff going Yeah, on lots of stuff to unpack mm -hmm. in there. You can get his side of the story. Yeah. Right? And you can see how he, you can see how he sees it, right? Yeah. He, he sees himself, he describes himself as a peer yep. to Zeus. Mm -hmm. And as you were talking about earlier, he points out, look, we each have our realm mm -hmm. and the earth is common to all of us. And I'm and, here on and, earth. And who are you to tell me? Absolutely. Who, or who is he to tell yeah. me that I can't be here doing what I want to do? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and from, from that point of view, from that standpoint, Poseidon's perspective is, is totally valid, right? Mm -hmm. he, he does not care about the considerations of Zeus, right? The plot of the Iliad is the will of Zeus. Right, and at this point, he's not, he's not concerning himself with with Thetis, right, mm -hmm. uh, and Achilles' honor, right, and the conflict with Agamemnon and all that other stuff. For him, Greeks are dying, and for him, the, he must act, right. And he has a hatred, right, for the Trojans. And even early on in, in the earlier books of the Iliad, we know that Poseidon, Athena, and Hera conspired to shackle Zeus, and they were successful had it not been for Thetis, 
mm -hmm. right? So there's that Thetis figure again, a kind of contentious bone. When we look at conflict between Zeus and Poseidon, Thetis works her way into there all the time. Here she's causing trouble for these two brothers in a sort of disconnected way, right? Mm -hmm. But she is causing trouble. She's the agent of discord here that's sort of shifting things for the Trojans, right? When they obviously should be for the Greeks, right? Mm -hmm. As Poseidon sees it, right? And we, we learned in, in Pindar, in, in his uh, Epinician Ode in Isthmian 8, that both Zeus and Poseidon coveted Thetis as a lover, but Themis told them, don't get involved, because she will sire someone who will overthrow you. And uh, that makes perfect sense for a god like Zeus, who is already large and in charge, to stay away as a mythological hot potato. And it even makes sense for a god like Poseidon, because he wants what he wants, and he wants to keep what he has. Yeah. Right. So their, their conflict, they were already in conflict, right? Because there was a time where they were like, I want Thetis. And Zeus would say, well, I want Thetis. Well, they're in conflict. Right? Until they learned what it was about her that made her, well, let's stay away from her. Right? But then here again, she's in the center of this sort of conflict because, with brothers. Because she has asked Zeus yes. to let the Greeks lose. That's right. To punish the Greeks for dishonoring Achilles. I think, yeah. have we done a podcast on that yet? Not yet. No, we'll okay. get, there. We'll get we'll, around to we'll, somewhere. We'll that. get there somewhere. But, yeah. that's, but that's kind of the gist of the story. Yeah. Um, and so that is why yeah. the Greeks are losing and because why Zeus is will. upset yeah. that Poseidon is helping them. And he's like, you're acting against my will, right? Yeah. And Poseidon's like, hey, hold on a second. Will you? I'm a peer, right? I'm your brother. I don't care. I'm going to do what I have to do, right? And... This idea is is a is for me of conflict between these two is fascinating. I, I the more I think about it, the more I'm I'm drawn to its sort of charm, right? And before he backs down, he evokes the possibility of a widespread rebellion among the gods. And this is something that, you know, we don't often think about because we like to see like Zeus large and in charge as the father yeah. of the of the Olympian and as a benevolent family, father and as a benevolent god right but he has issues like any you know chief executive officer of a major corporation say or a general of an army on the basis of, of on the verge of mutiny right he has to consider these dynamic personalities like Poseidon and when you have a powerhouse triumvirate like Poseidon Hera and Athena already have once been successful briefly of putting you in shackles, that's Zeus himself, right? You're you're gonna worry. Right? You're mm -hmm. gonna take notice about a guy like Poseidon who says, No, I'm I'm not gonna do it your way. I wanna do it this way. Right? So again, very fascinating, right? And and the idea of Poseidon is no he's no pushover. Right? No. He, no. He, he he's a principled god, right? For all his um for all his energy, right? He's extremely principled. Mm -hmm. So he, so his threat is that if Zeus spares Troy or mm -hmm. Ilion is mm -hmm. the other name for it here in the passage, yeah. that if Zeus spares it, then there's going to be rebellion. Yeah, not on the earth, but in, in uh, yes, amongst the Olympus. gods. Yes, yeah. right. That, that eternal these strife yes. between us. Yeah, eternal um, is strife. how he uh, describes it. Yeah, the heiress, right? The yeah. great discord. Right? Yeah. And there's a, there's all kinds of that going on, right? Yeah. We are in the middle of a war at this particular point. Right? Yeah. And so he leaves uh, he leaves the Greeks. He dives in dives into the ocean, mm -hmm. and uh, the Greeks miss him mm -hmm. um, because they no longer have 
have his help. But later on, Zeus does acquiesce in a sense and says, okay, now is the time that I've allotted for you gods to go down and fight for those whom you care about. Yes. Right? And so they pair off, and Poseidon, of course, fights very well with the Greeks. He, he joins the battle along with Hera and Athena. Um, he fights against the opposition to pro-Trojan gods like uh, Aphrodite and uh, Ares and Apollo. And Apollo even references in the Iliad himself that he doesn't want to fight his uncle because he, he honors him, mm-hmm. right? And he's probably a little bit afraid of him. But they've had a, they've had a tradition of cooperation in, in other mythologies, like I was talking about in Pausanias with Delphi, for example, with the exchange of Delphi between Poseidon and um, Apollo, right? During the age of colonization, you, you went to see Apollo and he gave you permission to go out and travel. And how did you get there? You, you traveled via the sea, right? So the two of them worked in concert in order to, like, you go to Magna Graecia, mm-hmm. like in Sicily and southern Italy, all you see is Apollo and Poseidon temples. That's it. Yeah. You know, they're everywhere. Well, that's not, that's it, yeah. but they're, they're everywhere because they're the ones, those divinities are the ones that those people, those brave adventurers in a certain sense went out and, and that successfully founded a community said we're not we have to honor the gods who do we honor Poseidon got us here and Apollo said it was okay yeah. for us to go so th- th- you see that everywhere and right? um, and we see um, an, an interesting characterization of Zeus as well because mm-hmm. we see this from his brother and he yeah. says like look he can go and, and abuse and he can threaten his own children they have to listen to him yeah. and so he he can he can say whatever he wants and treat them however he wants but yeah. i don't have to have to listen to him mm-hmm. um so it's an interesting characterization of of zeus yeah. as as a father there too well yeah and the relationships between mortals and, and their yeah. children right yeah. um i'm not quite sure you know like at that particular like you can do what you want to your own right but mine are down there too and when you make these decisions that affect them Without consulting me, I think that that is in error, right? Kind of, mm-hmm. kind of paraphrase the way of Poseidon's thinking, right? And you see examples of his relationship, like look at Theseus, for example, right? He's a pretty much, he's very standoffish, right? And he, you know, he has reasons to be upset with a guy like Heracles, for example, right? Because when Laomedon refused to pay him and Apollo for the building of the walls, Apollo, I don't know what Apollo did, Apollo went and cried on Mount Olympus, but... Um, Poseidon sent Cetus, he sent the sea monster to mm-hmm. attack Troy, right? And that would have been the end of it, had not Zeus's divine son, Heracles, killed it. So how would that make you feel as Poseidon? It's like, you know what, my brother's, you know what I mean? Like, I couldn't get involved then, right? You know yeah. what I mean? But there's conflict. It makes more conflict, right? Yeah. So it's, it breeds more and more of it. So there's, there's a great deal of, of sort of opposition going on. It's just below the surface because we're really hyper-focused on a character like Zeus. Yeah. Right? And For Poseidon sure. gets second fiddle right for the for the most part let's take a look at just that brief little section of book 20 on 58 to 70 where hades is speaking okay in this way the gods prompted the two armies to clash in combat strife exploded in each camp overhead the father of gods and men thundered and poseidon shook all the ground underneath and the tremors climbed the steep mountain slopes Ida shuddered from her roots to her peaks, along with Troy herself and the Achaean ships. And in the world below, the lord of the shades, unseen Hades, leapt from his throne and shrieked, terrified that Poseidon would crack open the earth and his halls would lie open to immortals and men, the moldering horror loathed even by the gods. 
Okay, so this is later in the story yes. where Zeus says, okay, have at it. Game on. G game on. Yeah. And we have quite a spectacular combat happening mm -hmm. here. Um, the father of gods and men thundering, of course, is Zeus. Zeus himself. Yes. Zeus himself. Mm -hmm. um, and we see Poseidon shaking the earth. Yes. And for those not as familiar with the terminology, there's um, a lot of... Places have multiple names, and gods have, have multiple epithets um, mm -hmm. that the poet um, uses. So sure. Ida here, that's the mountain um, that Troy is on or near. Nearby, yeah. Nearby. Mm -hmm. um, the Achaean ships, of course, referring to the Greek ships yep. there. And the Lord of the Shades is uh, the th our third brother. Mm -hmm. um, who the, we see the firstborn here. son of Cronus and Rhea. Yes. Hades. Which we will visit next week when we look we'll at talk Pluto. To Pluto. Right. So he gets a little. This is just a little sneak preview yeah. about Hades here. Just a little. Yeah. Just yeah. a little glimpse. Just, just a got, little taste. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. why I put it in there because yeah. you've got the three brothers in very short order, all referenced in a very short amount of time. This is the actual combat section, right, where the gods themselves are allowed to go down and, and fight, right? Yeah. And they go. They can fight for the Greeks, uh, which many of them do. Or they can fight for the Trojans, which a few of them do as well. And and in that scene, it describes the sort of the shaking of the earth, the, the power, right, of, of Zeus it's, and of Poseidon. It's so really the, a spectacular scene. It's a spectacular it's, scene. It's really it, spectacular. Does it remind you of any any other scene from a different primary source, perhaps? Um, I'm thinking of Hesiod's Theogony, where Zeus practically destroys the earth right. in his effort to right. gain control of it. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it, that, that idea of being able to destroy that which you cherish, right? It's, yeah. the, it's the ultimate thing, right? The, the earth itself. And the Poseidon there in that one represents that median force between the sky in the Homeric vision and the underworld, right? Mm -hmm. So it talks about the shaker of the earth and that Hades jumps up off his throne and is like shrieks Shrieking with terror. With terror right? yeah. Because Poseidon is going to be that, he's that guy between, he's that force between, he's that area yeah. between that may rip open, yeah. right? And expose a terrible sort of blending of... Yeah. of Life and death and immortality. Because Hades, and the Hades protects us yeah. from zombies and monsters. That's right. I mean, that's effectively yeah. what, what what this is. Like, yeah. Cer like Cerberus, the three-headed yeah. dog. Oh, yes. I'm, yeah, we've got to save that for next week. Yeah, we'll save but all yeah. that stuff. So uh, yeah. you'll just have to tune into the, the next it's podcast. The stuff that he's, he's a fascinating. Yeah. 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 yeah, and and this earthquake that mm -hmm. Poseidon triggers, like mm -hmm. this is this is colossal. So mm -hmm. the entire mountain mm -hmm. um, shudders from its roots to its peak, mm -hmm. and then um, and it's so intense that even Hades, all the way down in Hades, yeah. is, afraid is afraid that it's going to tear his realm apart. Right. So, um, yeah. So this uh, this clash of of the gods, yeah. and then of course opposite Poseidon, the poet goes on to tell us, mm -hmm. um, we see Apollo. Yes. Um, uh, we see um, all the pro Trojan gods are listed: Artemis, Artemis Ares. against Her yeah. Hera, and yeah. kind of all of the gods lining up against each other. Yes. And it's a uh, battle royale. Yeah. Right. And and um, you know, like I said earlier, Apollo doesn't really want to place himself in opposition to a god like Poseidon. He, Apollo is strong, and he has great skill. Um, but from a respect point of view, right, it shouldn't really come to fisticuffs, but it does. You know? and, and for the amount of hate that Apollo, I mean, the amount of hate that, that, sorry, that Poseidon or Neptune has for the, for the Trojans is, is um, tempered in a sense because he is also responsible for the evacuation uh, um, of uh, the Trojan uh, hero, uh, 
and he is, mm-hmm. right? Um, when when his when he is threatened, right, uh, with danger, right, at the hands of, of Achilles, the fate intercedes and overrides divine will. Whether it be Zeus's or Poseidon, he must survive, right? So Poseidon just flings him out like you'd fling a like a trout, you know, off the yeah. water onto the sea or something from the sea or off onto the shore. And he's, he's, he's gone. And that's the end of that, right? And then they, they continue their, their battle, right? Yeah. But it's, it's a large conflict, right? And you definitely yeah. see which side Poseidon's on and how he fits into the divine order in this section. Yeah. So, yeah, that's just a really spectacular scene, mm-hmm. the, the way it's described. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we, like, again, looking closely at, at that description gives yeah. you gives you an idea of uh, the severity of the conflict. Totally, yeah, yeah. Because it's been pretty much a story about men fighting other men, right? And of course, with gods overlooking. But then, when we get to that section twenty, even in fifteen, you get a taste of it uh, that the gods themselves are actually fighting. It it echoes, like you said earlier, of the of Hesiod, right? Yeah. When you're talking about the war against the giants or the war against the centaurs and so on. That the gods themselves are capable of waging war, and they've done it in the past, and they and they, and they do it here, right? Yeah. And war is a part of the cosmos, and we think about Achilles' shield. And I don't want to get off topic, but war is on there as well yeah. as peace. And this just makes me think that when when there are versions of Troy uh-huh. of the Trojan story that are told today, and they are, and again, that's a different. A different topic but yeah. arguably they are just as legitimate because it's a continuation of the telling of the myth yeah. but when you see um, interpretations of the story that neglect the divine element um, that's really half of the story that's being left out um, because the conflict and I know interactions amongst the divine beings yeah. is just as fascinating and just as violent and just as yeah. just as um, soap opera-ish, <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. a word, Dramatic. as what's going on amongst yeah. the humans. Histrionic, yeah. And, and this is, um, and it's this, important. this comes that, up again and yeah. again, but the Greek gods You lose are, half the story if you don't have the gods. Yeah, right. and for the Greeks, yeah. uh, they see their gods as very much human, like anthropomorphic yes. figures. They're just yeah. better and bigger versions yeah. of people, yeah. in a way. Um, yeah, they're just so, more extreme. Yeah, more... more mm-hmm. Extreme, mm-hmm. for sure. So, yeah. um, you know, the idea that um, one of the other things too that I wanted to, that I wanted to float out was uh, um, in Pausanias in, in, in Book Eight. There's a there's a um, section. Uh, it's called the Lamb's Well. It talks about a well in Mantinea. But again, this goes to the idea that there are different traditions, and then there are different portrayals of gods and goddesses based on a more local or regional um, idea. And that the god of Argos, uh, the Poseidon of Argos, or the Poseidon of Corinth, or the Poseidon that's portrayed on the pediment uh, uh, in, in Athens, uh, at the Parthenon, for example, that they're slightly different, mm-hmm. right? And um, each one of them is, is fascinating in a sense, but w- one of the things that I liked was that there is, just like Zeus, a substitution story for the birth of Poseidon. Okay. So, like the story of Zeus, uh, where he was substituted for a rock, Right, okay. um, and you can get that full story. You can back get in that full Jupiter story episode. way back in our Jupiter episode. There is one with Poseidon as well, and we learn about it in in Pausanias book eight, as well as um, I believe it's in Apollodorus. No, yeah, uh, it's in Apollodorus, 
And um, the Lamb's Well is a place in Mantinea, and according to um, this tradition, um, uh, Rhea gave birth to Poseidon and spirited him away and hid him into a group of flock of lambs. And um, at that time, she said that she had given birth to a colt, and Kronos consumed the colt, the horse, right? Okay. Uh, instead of Poseidon, where when Poseidon himself was raised, nurtured, right, uh, in Mantinea, right, and in this place when you visit it, it's a well now, but that's supposed to be the place that, that housed the infant Poseidon. In this sort of substitution story, mm-hmm. and you see these substitution stories, they're all over the place, whether it's, you know, Sargon the First or Moses or Zeus or Poseidon, Oedipus, the children, mm-hmm. right? Are, have a certain fate, they're substituted for something else, allows them to survive, to go on to become, do better things, right? Mm-hmm. Giving them access to, to something which they would not have before, right? Uh, at the very least, life, when there was only the option of death, right? So that, that is... That's um, interesting. Uh, I wasn't get. aware of that. Yeah, it's, it's, in, it's in Pausanias. Yeah. yeah. And even Herodotus, Herodotus in Book 2 and Herodotus in Book 4 says that um, Poseidon is a Libyan import, which I thought was kind of bizarre, but he says, oh, he's more of a Libyan, Libyan god. And uh, he says something like, um, oh, where was it? Uh, uh, Pausanias records that the Libyans have uh, recorded that Athena is the daughter of Poseidon and that because she possesses the gray-green eyes. Yeah. So, but that's, you know, because this idea of the Tritonian lake, Triton is mm-hmm. supposed to be a Libyan god that we talked about yeah. before. And it's supposed to take place in Libya, and it's supposed to be a son of Poseidon, and all that stuff like that. But in this version, they say that Poseidon uh, sired a child with Triton, a lake, which was like a feminine force, and they produced a child, Athena. Okay. Right. So that's I the Libyan. Find, I find that aspect of mythology fascinating. Mm-hmm. The, what, how, how a culture changes its myths as it brings in new gods. So kind of like that. Yeah that historical aspect yeah. of mythology and kind of where, you know, like what, what gods and myths are older and what, which ones are newer and how, how they adapt. And yeah, it, uh, it, it's, it's the way it, it's a, how it changes. It's yeah, dynamic. Yeah. You know, it's, it's very not dynamic. Just, uh, it's not static. static. Yeah. yeah not so there's static lots of things going on, especially when you're considering like a God like Poseidon that could start say in the 15th century BC and go right through to looking at thinking about him in the Hellenistic. Yeah, you know, you're looking and, at vast spans of time. And right? you know, I'm a huge fan of reception. Mm-hmm. So what we do, mm-hmm. like what has been done through, since then mm-hmm. with these myths and with these stories, and what we're doing with them today. And again, I'm c- yeah. you know coming back to the movies, and yeah. <laughs> um, which I don't watch, but my students certainly watch. Uh-huh. Um, Percy Jackson. Yeah, the Percy Jackson, yeah. Troy. Yeah, Troy. Was that Brad Pitt? In Brad Pitt, yeah. yeah. Okay, see, I, see, I don't yeah. even know. Um, but it's a continuation of this process, um, even though there's not the the uh, belief aspect of yeah. it. It's still this continual evolution, reinterpretation of these same mythological themes and stories. Well, sure, just, uh, just recently, I do have to finish it, but uh, Battlestar Galactica that was mm-hmm. on Sci-Fi Network is, is just laced with... Um, Hellenic references, uh, tons of Greek gods and goddesses, for yeah. example. So that's in there as well. Yeah, there, there, is, a, there is a great deal of mythology in, uh, going on all the time, all around us, and in many different aspects, some that we don't even really recognize. 
right? Yeah. But they've all become other, they've all become other things. But yeah. Neptune, you know, Poseidon, you know, whether it's the Wyndham Rewards Wizard sitting in a pool taking your points, you know, uh, or you know, it's it's. You know, that type of thing, you know, like yeah. you see on TV, yeah. or, or, or uh, you know, something that you see in a grocery store on the side of a can of tuna. They're all, they're all sort of there, right? yeah. And they're all uh, informed uh, yeah. by by this by this complex um, uh, system of mythology. Yeah. And I think this is, I could be wrong with this, but in Orange Is the New Black, oh yeah, I, I think that, that the company and uh, listeners can correct me if I'm wrong, uh -huh. um, but red, the, the company that supplies the prison kitchen with uh -huh. its vegetables <clears throat> is, I believe, called Neptune. <laughs> so there's a little bit of a joke there that uh -huh. it's, um, if, if I've got that right, I could have it, I yeah. could have it wrong. Um, but yeah, so there's just little references that once you know a bit about mythology, you start to, you start to pick up on. Um, so I think we've, we've covered Poseidon slash Neptune pretty, uh, yeah. pretty thoroughly here. Sure. Um, we don't have any listener mail again, so send us ah. some mail or, you know, we should just start making up listener mail. We will. Yeah, we'll, I'll make <laughs> so, one up next week. Send us some tweets. Um, mm -hmm. as, as I mentioned, we did have some, some, uh, tweets from, um, Avon. Um, so we just want to give another shout out to their really interesting podcast, um, The Endless Snot. And in fact, before um, our Pluto episode comes out, I really recommend that you go and listen to their Pluto e um, episode that they recorded back when the uh, Pluto was first demoted. Yeah. Um, and they're, they look uh, more at the name and the um, connections between Pluto and Hades, and more so than what we're going to do. Yeah. So if you're interested in kind of that cross-cultural, kind of how a Greek god and a Roman god um, relate and, and how they're different as well, definitely listen to that episode. It, was, it actually inspired me to, uh, to suggest that we do this tour of the solar system. Mm -hmm. So I'm giving that a shout-out, so I hope... Um, I, I hope that you do um, enjoy that. And in the reading room this week, mm -hmm. um, what are you currently reading? I'm still working on that book about the sun. Um, oh, okay. I'm working on it very, very slowly, okay. I have to confess, All right. because I get sucked into Twitter at night instead of reading. Okay. <laughs> um, but speaking of Twitter, um, and I will ask you what you're reading, because I know you're reading something really interesting, but speaking of Twitter... Um, if you want to follow along and learn a bit more about gods, we will be live tweeting a, um, a, a course, um, a university course, um, and the hashtag for that is the course code, which is hashtag 1P95. Um, so we live tweet that Mondays. it'll be Mondays 8 a.m. But you can just search for the hashtag yeah, and you pick it up whenever you want. Um, and we would love to have you join us um, in the conversation there. And of course, you can use the myth take hashtag or yeah. um, tweet at us directly. Now, what are you reading? I'm reading Joseph Campbell's uh, Goddesses book. Such a good book. Yeah, an extremely good book. And um, I've read Hero with a Thousand Faces. But um, Campbell, this is the new publications put out by the Joseph Campbell Organization uh, Society, and uh, they're very inexpensive, very well done, and um, they're a pleasure to read. And w one of the things we're thinking about with Trident, uh, with the Trident, with association with Poseidon, which I forgot to include in there, but Campbell talks about the symbol of the Trident as well. Mm -hmm. And he places the symbol of the Trident as a central point between two opposites. And I think in that book, 
uh, line in book 20 of the Iliad, we talk about Zeus as sort of the supremacy of the sky, right? And then Hades as the underworld. The trident, this is representative of that, that, that triple, mm -hmm. that trifold division, right? Yeah. Of the sky, the earth, or the sea, I mean mm -hmm. the sea, and, and the underworld, right? And that he represents that middle point, right? And from the middle, Poseidon can, he goes out and, and he does what he must, right? Does yeah. what he does. So there's that always, and uh, with that idea. And then and, and to leave you with a quote, it says, Myths are public dreams. Dreams are private myths. Oh, I like that. I like that. Okay. Yep. So. Episode 11. All right. In the can. Yes. And uh, my Twitter is at Ines Allison. And I'm you at Darren Sundstrom. And that will be in the show notes. And thank you for joining us. And we will be back with Pluto at some point. See you soon. Okay.